Coming up on today's show, Danielle Smith, the new leader of the UCP and therefore soon to be Premier of Alberta. We'll break it down with Melissa Cowett, a Western Canadian public policy professional, and Rachel Notley, the leader of the opposition, will join us and give us her take on what this means. And political science professor Dr. Lisa Young will join us. Got a text here from Brian Sache just to point out your statement about a lot of Albertans voting are in. Actually, it was just over half of the eligible paid up UCP members who cast their ballots to put her in that lofty position. Albertans, yes, but not what one would actually call a lot in the bigger picture. Fair point, Brian. It was about 43,000 votes, 44,000 votes for Danielle Smith. That's a lot of Albertans, okay? But you're right. You are absolutely right. If you take it a little bit farther... Um, there's 124,000, call it, 123,915 eligible UCP members that could have cast ballots yesterday. Not all of them did. Only 84,593 votes were actually cast. So, Daniel Smith picks up 44,834 of those votes. 53.8% of the votes cast. 36% of the UCP membership, if everyone had voted, uh, she would have picked up more, but she got 36% of the eligible UCP members voted for her. But if you extrapolate it out to where we're going to be next May, okay, there are 2.8 million people eligible to vote in that election in May, as we stand now, okay? 2.8 million. You figure out what percentage of that voting pool Danielle Smith earned last night, it's 1.6%. So you're right. It's not a mandate to govern by any stretch of the imagination in terms of the numbers. But you know what? All of that is academic. None of that matters. As I said before, in the system that we play in, this is how it works. And Danielle Smith is the leader of the UCP because she won last night. Doesn't matter if she took two votes to one, she won which means she will be premier of this province as soon as she's sworn in next week. Case closed, end of story. That's how it works. She is premier of Alberta. Now we'll see what happens when we go to a general election. 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Those are the numbers. Okay, let's get another voice in here. We're going to chat with Melissa Cowett, Western Canadian public policy professional and the principal of MC Consulting. Melissa, thanks so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Shay. So what we saw play out last night, um, I'm a little surprised that Smith won on the sixth ballot. Conventional thinking and a lot of the party insiders I had spoken to said Daniel Smith wins on the first ballot or she doesn't win. She's not going to be ha- seeing a lot of down ballot support. Were you surprised by the way it played out? I actually was not surprised that she didn't win on the first ballot. You know, when I was looking um, at the numbers in a very sort of unscientific way, but just sort of segmenting out like who of the 124,915 members, which of those people, you know, would have voted yes in Kenny's leadership review, which of them would have voted no, and where most of those new members sold, about 63,000 would have gone. And the math to me just never really added up for a first ballot win. I was thinking it would be more on the fourth ballot, but six ballots, I think. Um, is is a little bit surprising, even for people who didn't think she would win on the first ballot. It's very hard to do that in these kinds of ranked ballot races, especially when there are seven people in the race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to the very last ballot. What does that say? What does that mean um, for Danielle Smith going forward? All over the text line, there are, and and you've seen it, I'm sure, too, all over social media. She can't possibly consider this a mandate. She can't go forward. Oh, yeah, she can. She absolutely can. Uh, But what does it mean in terms of legitimacy and getting things done? Can she just, I mean, she is the premier, but what does it say about where she stands for the next six or seven months? 
Look, I think that the bigger struggle and um, and issue for her to tackle right now is a mandate from caucus, yeah. first and foremost, and then working on the membership as well. You know, I, I do understand people's concerns that are saying that, you know, only less than 2% of um, Albertans voted in this race. It's not a mandate. But the reality is, as you said in your intro, the United Conservative Party does have a mandate to be in government until next May. So I think what she needs to do is, and I believe she'll probably already be doing that, is making sure that caucus is, is in a place where they can all sing from the same song sheet so that she eliminates the internal squabbling that we've been dealing with for the past two years so that at least going to party members and then after that going to Albertans becomes a bit easier because you're legitimate as a united front. So I think that's actually her biggest um, her biggest um, barrier right now um, to, to governing without the distractions that we've seen uh, under Premier Kenny. I think you're absolutely right. I think before we can even talk about their chances heading into May, we first have to... Uh find out exactly how caucus is going to come together and if they're going to be united and if you're going to have one team going forward. And I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I've covered a lot of leadership races over the years, Melissa. I don't ever remember four of the candidates coming together to stand on the stage and denounce the primary policy piece of another candidate. So um, we know that there's division within that caucus. She managed to win, but how does that, how does that wound get healed? I mean, they were very, 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 very divided throughout the campaign. Did they just put that in their rearview mirror now and we all forget what happened? I don't think we forget what happened, but I think that a lot of the frustration coming from those candidates who um, were coming out against Smith, um, and this is nothing to say whether you agree with her or not agree with her, but that was coming from a place of feeling like, wow, we didn't expect this was going to happen. And it, it sort of felt a little bit frantic when some of that was happening, which, you know, you can you can deduct as a bit of entitlement as well. So I think that for her, um, she needs to set the tone with her leadership. It's really, the ball is really in her court. So how does she treat those other candidates? Do many of them make it into cabinet, into key roles? I assume that they will. How does she treat people who she knows um, aren't her biggest fan. Does she excommunicate them or does she bring them back into the right. fold? I actually think she's going to do her best to keep the party together in that way. And, you know, it's, it's conventional in leadership races. People are very mean to each other during the race. And the right thing to do if you're trying to keep the party together, if that is your goal, is to sort of get over those divisions very quickly after the race is done. And so I do think that you will see the majority, if not all of those candidates um, do that because the risk of splitting the party at this point with a very strong and capable NDP as an opposition is really a risk of government losing government next May. And I think they understand that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think uh, that's the first step. And I, th- I agree with you completely. That's immediately how you build bridges and sort of uh, put put aside some of the uh, bad feelings that may be there. Then the next question, and I wonder what you think will happen here, comes down to policy, because you're going to have Travis Taves, you're going to have Rebecca Schultz, you're going to have uh, all of them, except for Todd Lowen, that were in this leadership, as well as another uh, bunch of other MLAs, you know, including the Premier. Uh, 
who came out very strongly saying they would not support her principal piece, Bill 1, the Sovereignty Act. They're not on board. It's not going to happen. So does she bring that forward? Does she need to soften her stance? Does she risk her own party not supporting her signature piece of legislation on her first? I mean, how does that play out in terms of policy? How does she approach that over the next six months? So I think that consultation on this piece of legislation, particularly with caucus, is going to be hugely important. Um, So you know, her team, I'm sure, is already working on what this is going to look like. But caucus needs to be sort of comfortable with where the legislation is at. I'll remind everybody, most of caucus is not fundamentally opposed to the idea that Alberta should be pushing back against Ottawa, just as a concept. So most people are on board with that. It's really now getting into the how they do that. The Sovereignty Act is how Danielle um, wanted to do that. And so I think that there is room if she works with people to um, to make that piece of legislation not as charged as it was mm-hmm. during the campaign. And also if she supplements the introduction of that bill with a really smart communications plan so that people are not being confused about what the purpose of it is. People are not being confused that it is a suggestion that Alberta should separate. Like those are things that are going to need to be ironed out. But I think if she is collaborative about it, she she will face some pushback, but I think she can introduce it. What it looks like, she's going to need some input from caucus on that. Um, and th- this this is all over the text line, and it's the obvious question. She got 53.5% of the vote. Jason Kenney got 51.5% of the vote. She's the new leader, and everybody is united. But Jason Kenney, it was so divided, he had to leave. Um, at the end of this exercise that we've gone through since May, um, where are we, Melissa? Has Have things gotten more united, less united? Has any of that been settled? Here's the difference, I think, between the situation with Kenny's leadership review and Danielle's win last night. It's the it's the nature of the group of people that were opposing each of these camps. So with Kenny, it was if we want to divide the parties into like former Wild Rose, former PC. With Kenny, it was former PC, uh, former Wild Rosers rather right. that were really upset with him. In the in Danielle Smith's case, it is more so along the lines of former PCers that are upset with her. Why does that matter? The more motivated faction in the UCP that would split, that would force um, a leadership review, is that former Wild Rose faction, and they're behind her. So for that reason, even though the numbers are quite similar, there's nuance in like what that group looks like and what it is likely they are willing to do to disrupt the leader. So I think that's the major nuance that, that makes Danielle's position slightly more secure than Kenny's position, even though it's not a full mandate um, from 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 members in the way that you would expect from other leadership races in the 60-70%. Uh, one of the things that struck me last night is we get down to the final ballot and it's Brian Jean's votes. And I think a lot of people who like Brian Jean were uh, dyed-in-the-wool wild rosers going back 10 years. And I was anticipating there'd be a lot of hard feelings for Danielle Smith, so I thought it would come right down to the wire. Do you think um, that that history that, that she has acknowledged many times throughout the campaign, the mistakes that she made, that Wild Rose faction, uh, Brian Jean, it looks like some of his supporters did go to her. I mean, is there some forgiveness there? Can we read into the tea leaves here that, you know what, maybe they're getting over that at this point? Yeah, and I think it kind of comes, if you are a voter that was upset about that, in your mind, what is the lesser of two evils, so to speak? Do you want yeah. sort of a Kenny 
like government in caves or do you want something that's more reflective of perhaps those wild rose values? And I think that when that is the choice, even if people were still upset with Danielle, the choice for those people was probably very clear at that point that, yes, we are upset with what happened seven or eight years ago with her, but in the context of what the choice is, yeah. she would rank higher than, than Taves. Makes perfect sense. Melissa, thank you so much. As always, great insight. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is Melissa Cowett, who is a Western Canadian public policy professional and principal of MC Consulting, a veteran of conservative politics in our part of the world. Right now, though, we're going to bring another voice on and one that's uh, keenly impacted by what happened last night. Rachel Notley, who is the official opposition leader of the NDP and uh, the opposition for the election coming up in May of next year. So, I mean, it's right around the corner. So, um, Ms. Notley, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, your reaction, I think there's a lot of people uh, that are thinking and a lot of people I've seen posting on social media and sending me texts saying, I think Rachel Notley is probably the second happiest Albertan this morning. Is, is that a fair assessment of your reaction to last night? Well, not really, because, you know, as an Albertan, I'm very concerned about what the next seven months holds for Albertans. I'm afraid that we're going to see, unfortunately, a, a, a continuation of the chaos um, that we've been subjected to for some time now. Um, and it's now going to be made worse by a series of kind of wacky ideas. Um, and at the same time, what won't be happening is we won't see a, a really uh, considered focus on addressing the cost of living issues that so many Alberta families are facing, nor will we see a thoughtful approach uh, and a focused approach on on restoring the quality of our health care across the province. I wanted to ask you about that because a lot of the candidates, I mean, Brian Jean among all of the candidates, other than um, Daniel Smith saying that the campaign, they think, missed the mark. Uh, and that's not what they wanted to talk about. And that's not what they heard Albertans wanting to talk about. They say health care and, as you say, the cost of living, those sorts of things. Do you think it was a missed opportunity to bring some light to those issues that Albertans are facing? Well, I, I think uh, it was, and but but it wasn't just the leadership race that, that was that missed opportunity. Quite frankly, the UCP has been missing that opportunity all along the way. Um, I mean, our health care uh, system is in crisis because of so many things that the UCP itself has done to put it into crisis. It's not just as a result of the pandemic. It's a result of a number of the decisions taken by the UCP well before the pandemic was uh, was here. And, and so what we need is a, a really a, a focused effort on 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 fixing the system and and of course now as you rightly say uh, certainly to the degree that any of these folks are talking about it um, they weren't talking about it from a perspective of fixing the system they're talking about creating more chaos in the system and so they miss that opportunity but it doesn't surprise me because this is really quite an, an example of the tail wagging the dog and and uh, you know Danielle Smith was put into this position by a very extreme group of less than one percent of Albertans, and and unfortunately, for the next few months, the rest of us in Alberta are are going to have to uh, to suffer through it. For all intents and purposes, the campaign is underway for the election to be held this May. Um, Mm-hmm. As you say, it's a very small group of the population that actually voted in this. I mean, she's got the support of about one and a half percent of the electorate for the next election. So she's got a lot of uh, ground to make up there. But uh, it resonated. It dominated. How, as we go through this campaign, do you not end up back in that position? I mean, if you're saying that those aren't the issues that Albertans really want to be focused on, then what happened and how do you make sure it doesn't happen again? Well, I think the, the issue is, is that... Uh 
they were only able to, they, they, they uh, were campaigning to the folks who actually signed up to the UCP. And, and the UCP has become increasingly out of touch with mainstream Albertans. But the next election will involve all Albertans. And it will be because of that that certainly our party will be talking about the solutions we have in mind for health care, the solutions we have in mind to, to help uh, with the affordability crisis, the solutions we have in mind to ensure that all of our kids can get a, a modern education and, and, and see a, a strong future for themselves here in Alberta with uh, good jobs uh, for generations to come. And so we'll be speaking to mainstream Albertans. And, and uh, the issue is, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, I, I, and I'm not sure, I can't speak to how the other guys are going to try to, to, to address that big gap, um, and if they can or if they want to. But uh, um, I, I certainly people can count on us uh, to be focused on those kinds of issues. Uh, uh, and you're uh, in the headlights last night, and of course you will be right through. There's no question that, uh, and no surprise there, I don't think. But the focus is mm-hmm. the Notley Singh Trudeau <laughs> Alliance. You're tied to just uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's then tied to Justin Trudeau, and that is the root of all evil. Um, <laughs> is there some truth to that, and is that something that you need to be aware of? into this campaign and countering that narrative? Well, listen, you know, I'd, I'd say two things about it. I mean, I think it is a bit of a tired old trope that they're dragging out in order to distract from the fact that their own record here in the province of Alberta, which is actually the job they're running to, to do um, uh, is so poor um, on the issues that Albertans really care about. But I will also say this, um, I have a strong record of standing up for Alberta, and I will always stand up for Alberta. That is uh, what I've been running to do, and that's what I think I did when I was Premier. I mean, we're uh, less than a year away from having the first pipeline to Tidewater in over 50 years built. And that was done as a result of me standing up for Alberta against sometimes people in my own party because my job is to be there for Albertans. And that was how it was then and that's not going to change. But really, that whole narrative, thats it's just political gamesmanship. And I think Albertans are getting a bit tired of it. And what they really want is to hear how these folks are going to reverse the damage that's being done uh, to health care, to the cost of living um, in a way that's really impacting people's lives. Um, Danielle Smith will be sworn in next week. She will take over a majority government if it remains together and she gets the support of her caucus. She can basically do what she wants. As leader of the opposition, you're obviously saying today that you're you're concerned about what the next six months could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have the legislative weight to stop anything, but what do you do? I mean, it is your job. You're the leader of the opposition. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, I mean, if she plans to go ahead with some of the issues she's been talking about, I mean, the Sovereignty Act, for instance, we will we will fight and, 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 and debate it uh, as long as they, they give us the opportunity to do it, because it's such a bad idea for Alberta. It will bring such economic uncertainty and chaos into our province at a time when we are just barely starting to get back on our feet. Let's not forget, Albertans are experiencing the slowest wage growth in the country right now. So so we are not in a position to to jeopardize our economic growth and to jeopardize um, investor confidence. Yet, that's what her sovereignty uh, stuff would do. So um, we will fight that as, in any way that we can, and we'll, we'll certainly urge Albertans to reach out directly uh, to pressure them to, to not move forward with these kinds of uh, wacky ideas. Um, and, um, you know, uh, 
that that's what you do when you're in opposition and and um sometimes we we can be successful and hopefully we will be here i would argue this as well that uh until she goes to the general public she does not have a mandate for these ideas she suggests that this you know one percent vote gives her the mandate she is wrong and uh, she shouldn't move forward on any of her her really extreme ideas with respect to health care and the sovereignty act um until she has um tested them with the general public throughout this province well, two things there first of all um of course technically you are correct um the the general elections coming up in May. Prior to that, she hasn't won an election, period. She doesn't have a seat in the legislature. And you've been very vocal over the past few days, outright mm-hmm. challenging her to run in Calgary Elbow. Already, at least one MLA has stepped down from their seat in rural Alberta this morning. Brooks Medicine Hat mm-hmm. saying, Daniel, come run here. Um, mm-hmm. How important is it for you that she run in that vacant seat in Calgary Elbow or somewhere ASAP? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, you know, she, she should run because obviously if she's going to bring some of these, these really extreme ideas uh, in, uh, to Alberta, she needs to be in the legislature to be held accountable for them. Um, if she ends up running in Brooks Medicine Hat, listen, uh, we've got a fabulous candidate there, uh, uh, Gwendolyn Dirk. We were just out there last week. We had our most successful fundraiser ever in the history of the Medicine Hat ridings, even when we held them. Um, she's a, a longtime teacher and, and college instructor and community volunteer from the area. But the other thing I will say is if uh, Smith chooses to run in Brooks Medicine Hat, that does not let her off the hook uh, in terms of calling a by-election in Calgary Elbow. That seat has been absolutely vacant for over a month now, and it is uh, quite shocking that the government is not moving ahead to call the by-election. And I don't care if they're scared about whether they could win it or not. I mean, it's been a strong UCP seat for, for most of its time, but even if they are scared about not being able to win it, they have an obligation to give folks in Calgary a voice, especially on the verge of, of, uh, of doing so many uh, dramatic and, I would argue, um, uh, contrary to to the prime, uh, you know, such a shift in, in uh, policy. If they intend to bring that forward, they must give people a voice. Um, Ms. Notley, thank you so much for your time. As always, I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. Uh, have a have a great uh, weekend. And you too. Happy Thanksgiving to all your listeners. Thank you very much. That is Rachel Notley, official opposition leader, leader of the NDP, of course, in our province, and she will be opponent, the chief opponent of Danielle Smith when we uh, go to the polls next May. chat with Dr. Lisa Young, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Young, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. So, um, I was a little surprised that on the sixth ballot, Danielle Smith won. I thought the farther down the ballot we went, uh, the less the chance was that she would be the winner. I thought first ballot, second ballot, yeah, okay. But I thought her chances would diminish as we went down. Turns out I was wrong. That's happened before. What was your reaction? Well, uh, you know, it was a bit of a nail-biter, uh, not knowing the outcome. But I think, you know, even when we were looking at this uh, a month in advance, the real question was how Brian Dean supporters would, yes. uh, you know, what they would do with their second preferences. And, you know, it's really interesting when we look at this all, you know, in the light of day the morning after, the majority of them went to Travis Taves, but that wasn't enough to get uh, Taves 
behaves up and over the 50%. Uh, Smith was already so far ahead because she got so much, uh, well, so much of her own support uh, on the first ballot, um, but also because she got uh, so much support from Todd Lowen. Right, exactly. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, doing it with uh, Rob Breckenridge last night, we were both talking about that. Okay, we're now down to Brian Jean votes. Have they forgiven and forgotten and are willing to uh, jump in with Daniel Smith or are those grudges still there? The resentment for crossing the floor and pretty much ending the Wild Rose. And like you say, it was split, but it was just enough to put her over the top. Exactly. And, you know, it was really such a strange thing to see, you know, second preferences from the former Wild Rose leader (laughs) going to the other former Wild Rose leader to elect her as leader of the UCP, right? I mean, this really was the revenge of the old Wild Rose party at some uh, level. It was very, very interesting. So I guess the, the, the entire exercise, as we know, was meant to end the division and to try and unite the party. Based on the result that we saw, a three and a half percentage point win on the sixth ballot, I don't think anybody's going to say, oh, look, we're all united and on the same page. It doesn't come out that way. Yeah, it, it certainly underlined the challenge that she's going to face in terms of caucus management. Yeah. Is that the major issue? I mean, of course, we've got the election looming in seven months, but I guess job one is to try and get a team together, right, and deal with that division and see if she can't put it behind them. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the trick here is I think everyone in the caucus wants the party to win the next election. So they they want to be united. The question is, can Smith create the conditions that allow them to be united? The, you know, the, the old Wild Rose folks, the, the people who were opposed to a lot of what Jason Kenney did, they're back in the tent. But can she keep the, you know, Kenney side of the party? Yeah. And I think the critical issue here is the Sovereignty Act. Will she back away from what she said and, you know, water down the Sovereignty Act to the point that the Travis Taves and and others uh, in the party who were such outspoken opponents of it can find a way to hold their nose and support it. And that is the critical test. This is the thing. I think you're so right. Uh, You know, she has said it's going to be Bill 1. It's the first thing that she wants to accomplish. We've had four of these leadership candidates on stage denouncing it and saying they cannot and will not support it. It's a built-in caucus revolt. Uh, Can Travis Taves now pivot and say, well, she's changed it just enough that I can support it? I mean, the stance was so strong, Lisa. Is there room to move there? I don't know. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about how you water this down yeah. to the point that it still satisfies her supporters, but is acceptable to someone like Travis Taves. And it's pretty hard to do that. Um, you know, they might be able to fall back on the argument that the legislation that she put forward just creates, you know, a process for uh, opting out of federal legislation, but it's still creating a process for doing something that's unconstitutional. She might promise, you know, that she would pass it, but not have it uh, promulgated as law, the way that the NDP did with the turn off the taps legislation. But that involves a lot of trust, um, you know, that she's not actually going to move forward with it that way. So that's a critical question. And it's got to be a question that's being discussed right now. It has to be. In 
conversations about who will sit in her cabinet. Because if you agree to sit in cabinet, you agree to support her government's agenda. And you need to, under these circumstances, know what that is. Yeah, I mean, it, it would, just to be a fly on the wall would be fascinating. Uh, what about, and there's a lot of talk about mandate, and, and people are upset, and she doesn't have a mandate. Well, she does. I mean, that's how our systems work, and, and she can go ahead and do it. If she, But does she need to run at least in a by-election? Forget about the general election. Does she need to have a seat before she starts implementing some of these uh, actions? Absolutely. I think before she can do very much, she needs a seat. And I understand that uh, MLA Frey uh, has just resigned her seat and suggested that Danielle Smith run. So I think we're going to see a by-election called, you know, momentarily. Uh, If if not today, then Tuesday. And it will be in the rural riding. She's not going to be running in Calgary Elbow, right? Yeah, I mean, a a seat has just been cleared for her (laughs) as she signaled, you know. Uh, But the question is, is she going to also call a by-election in Calgary Elbow? Um, She said she might not. And I think you know, that's a disastrous first political move to say, you know, me getting into the legislature is important enough to call a by-election for the people of Calgary Elbow. Oh, that's not an important enough, you know, that they have representation in the legislature. And I think for someone who has to win over Calgary, that would be a terrible first move. Yeah, I mean, it, there are so many landmines out there going forward with only seven months. Um How do you go about this? Like you say, there are so many different things that she's put out that a lot of people have problems with, a lot of people like, uh, but what do you anticipate the next six or seven months looking like? Uh, Is it going to hold together, I guess, is the question, Lisa. I don't know. (laughs) I think that... That, that's my honest answer. I think that the you know the real obstacles come in the next months or two months while she navigates around the Sovereignty Act, while she puts together a, a cabinet. And I think we'll know a lot more once we see what's in this legislation and if things fall apart. If she can get past that, then I think she's actually in a position to do, you know, we use the word pivot a lot, Mm -hmm. but I think she's in a a position to pivot. And I think some of what we saw in her speech last night was laying the groundwork for the pivot. A lot of people heard her fiery rhetoric at the beginning and thought, okay, that's who Danielle Smith is going to be. And to some extent, that is who she's going to be, I think. But later in the speech, she started talking about strength and compassion. And I think that there, she might very well have a strategy that could make things difficult for for Rachel Notley and the NDP. If she opens up the taps on spending, if she's able to, you know, talk about the importance of being compassionate about helping those who are vulnerable, um, those who are struggling with uh, the rising cost of living, and she can back it with actual action, then, you know, she could find a path to to winning the next election um but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, places where it could all fall apart before she gets yeah. there so you know that's what i'm going to be watching over the next few months yeah uh for people like you and myself who get, get paid to talk about this kind of thing uh, we've got lots to go over <laughs> for the next six <laughs> or seven months and i'll be <laughs> leaning on you to help us navigate it all thank you very much dr young My pleasure. That is Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. And um, yeah, we're set up for a very, very interesting campaign into the spring election. 
Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.